Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. This is Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, and it's my job to help you put the pieces of the product puzzle together, unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX research and product management professionals. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Allen. Elizabeth is a Toronto-based researcher, consultant, and educator with over 13 years of experience helping organizations to uncover insights that fuel smarter design decisions. She holds a PhD in cognitive psychology from the University of Chicago, and she has also lectured there in psychological and philosophical ideas of consciousness. Elizabeth is an active contributor to the global UX community, speaking at conferences such as UXNZ, Web Directions, and Interaction. She is the co-chair of the User Experience Professionals Association Conference, a content advisor for the UX Research Conference, and also a mentor for Hexagon UX. Before starting Brazen, her UX research consultancy, Elizabeth worked as a UX researcher at Shopify, the e-commerce platform that powers over 1 million businesses in 175 countries, working across chatbot and point of sale products. Now she helps clients from around the world, including Mozilla, Instacart, and Shopify to challenge assumptions and shape better products through research. You can find Elizabeth at brazen.io and on Twitter at elizallen underscore. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brendan. It's nice to be here. And also, I am so rarely introduced as Dr. Elizabeth Allen. I, uh, I appreciate that. It makes me feel very special today. Thank you. Oh, no worries. My wife's actually a doctor, and I always feel like it's appropriate to, to give respect, <laughs> respect to the qualification. Um, yeah. Look, before... <laughs> Before we get into the serious stuff, I, I read somewhere that you play the banjo and I figured that there's got to be a story there. How, how did that all come about? <laughs> I actually have my banjos right behind me, but I, I'm not, I promise I'm not going to, to play it. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, so this must have been maybe 10 years or so. I just, I had a friend whose um, uncle was, was a banjo player and uh, who had a band and uh, was kind of exposed to it that way. And I just really, I just thought it sounded great. And I was really interested in it. And I would play with his banjo occasionally. And then I think for like maybe some birthday or something, I treated myself to a, a, a banjo and been playing sporadically ever since. I live in an apartment, so I can only play. I can only play so much without feeling like I'm bothering other people. Uh, so I'm not quite at where you'd expect for someone who's had a banjo for ten years. But it's like a nice, uh, very non-screen using, you know, nice, very like analog, non-technology thing to do in my spare time. <laughs> yeah, it's so important to get a bit of time away from the screen, particularly when you work in tech like we do. Yeah. Now, obviously, aside from uh, aside from playing some banjo, you've got your own consultancy, and you're also very active, as I mentioned in your introduction, in the UX community. And when I was researching for this interview, I uh, obviously came across the Hexagon UX website, and there was a quote on that website that really floored me. I actually um, posted about that on LinkedIn recently, and the quote was, "In the United States, which neither of us are from, fewer." large companies are run by women than by men named John. And like oh I said, that, yeah, it really floored me. And I just wanted to um, ask uh, you a little bit about, you know, what is Hexagon UX? 
Oh yeah, uh, Hexagon UX is an organization uh, operating in Toronto and I'm, I think a bunch of other cities um, around North America or if not the world, um, which is basically uh, a, a kind of a mentorship sort of program. They might do other things as well, but I was involved in mentoring there and um, essentially pairing up um, women and people of marginalized genders with, with other individuals who can mentor them and I think generally different aspects of tech. So in my case, um, I was paired with a, a young woman who uh, was kind of getting started as a UX researcher and just kind of needed some a bit of coaching and advice along the way. And it was really great. It's a really kind of laid back organization, a nice way to make connections. Um, I had a really good time um, mentoring. They kind of provide you with a bit of a framework for kind of every week or every other week, what sorts of things you might want to do together and that kind of thing. And there's a little party at the end. Um, so yeah, it's just a really nice um, kind of locally run organization that I had a great time being a part of. because I find that um, as, yeah, as a woman, as a woman in tech, uh, it's really important to, to me to be at least somewhat of a role model for other other people. Uh, and so that was kind of a nice, easy way to kind of give back a little bit. It's one of my goals for the year was to try to do a bit more kind of volunteering or mentoring or, or something like that. And sometimes it's hard to set that up on your own. So it was nice to have a kind of bridge to that sort of experience. Yeah, to have, have an organization that you believe in to plug into. Mm -hmm. What, what, you know, what sort of things um, in your experience can people in tech do to better support diversity, whether that's women or people from marginalized genders or different ethnicities, you know, what sort of things can, can we do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a lot. Um, I think one is being the sort of place that those type of people would want to work at. Um, so for example, like having uh, really strong codes of conduct in place, you know, having an HR team that's obviously committed to, to addressing issues with that. Um, you know, I, I find that <laughs> I find that as a woman who is, has looked for jobs in the past, if I go on a company's website and I see that the leadership team is like 90% male or 90% white or, or whatever, then I'm probably not going to be as interested as if there were a more diverse team, right? And so it, I think it's hard for organizations sometimes because they've gotten to a point where they have that kind of problem and they want to fix it, which is cool. But, you know, that doesn't mean that I, as the kind of employee, should have to sacrifice whatever environment I would rather rather be in for that cause, if you know what I mean. So I think that that's, that's important. And also another thing that uh, I think a lot of companies do is kind of talk about the pipeline problem. There just, there aren't enough of those sorts of people out there that we want to hire. And the problem is that there aren't enough of you, not that we're, you know, being exclusive with the way we hire or something. And that's almost never uh, the case. There are certainly, you know, biases people have in, in terms of who they choose to interview, like what kinds of decisions they make based on resumes, things like that. And like a lot of barriers that um, people of different, um, you know, genders or racial, racial backgrounds or ethnicities or whatever have to kind of cross in order to just even be seen by these organizations. Um, and I think, unfortunately, there's still a lot of education and work to be done around, you know, helping these companies understand that it really isn't our problem, it's your problem, and it's your job to fix it. And, you know, we have a lot, <laughs> we have a lot of uh, uh, benefits we can bring you as a company if you just, you know, take a second to, to consider us as you would your kind of straight white male, you know, individually typically tend to hire. So yeah, but I, I probably have a lot more thoughts on that. That's, that's about all I could share at the moment. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, it just, it just strikes me when you see quotes like that. And I know that they're speaking in the broader context that um, people seem to be ignoring the research out there that proves that diversity is so much better for creative process, whether that's product or design. 
um, and it, it's just how you know how do we actually how do we actually make that um, make that a reality? Um, like you say, visibility is a bit of an issue, and one of the objectives I have for for this show is actually to to make sure that it's representative um, not of what we have now, but uh, what we need to have in terms of the the people that are getting the platform and and getting some visibility. So yeah, um, absolutely. So I wanted to ask you. I, also was looking back at uh, your UXNZ 2019 talk, which was a really great talk, by the way. And you were um, describing your PhD experience as something that you, quote, uh, wouldn't recommend to most people, end quote. But you didn't elaborate yeah. on that at all. You sort of just rolled into the rest of your talk. And I just, <laughs> I just wanted to ask you, you know, tell me about that. What, what was it about that that you wouldn't recommend to most people? First of all, it's funny because I, you know, usually when I'm giving a talk at a conference, I'm, I'm pretty much not retaining anything. I'm just talking. I can't remember what I'm saying. So it's good to know that I just kind of breeze past that and moved on to something else. I, um, yeah, so uh, it's, yeah, so I, I did a PhD in, in cognitive psychology. It took me about five and a half years, which is a bit faster than I think a lot of programs are. And that included a master's kind of along the way. Um, and I personally had a great experience. I had a fantastic advisor. He allowed me to kind of, you know, do whatever I wanted to do. Um, I had a lot of friends in the program. For me, it all went quite well. But um, almost the whole time I was doing the PhD, I was like 99% sure that the outcome of this I wanted was to have a lab, you know, be a professor, do academic research. And so that was the way I would get to that goal. Then about maybe six months before I finished my PhD, I kind of had a bit of a freak out where I realized like, this is not what I want. Like it's, you know, the academic job market's very difficult. I'd probably have to move somewhere that I didn't really want to live. Um, I wasn't necessarily so in love with the research problem I was focused on and it would be hard to change. There's kind of other, other things I was thinking about. And I managed to find UX research and that's obviously been a good career for me. But, you know, I would definitely say that you should only do a PhD if you really are like so very sure that um, you want to have an academic career and that you're pretty sure you'll be able to get the job that will get you there. Otherwise, I would suggest maybe doing a master's or something like that instead. And you could always maybe extend that um, if you really feel like you do want to do a PhD. But in my case, I have no regrets. But if I had left after maybe two years with my master's, I probably would be, you know, kind of better off in my career than I am today because I would have had those extra few years in the job market. So that might have helped a little bit more. Oh, that's really interesting. That's really interesting that you say that just that extra time that you would have had. Uh, was, was there any particular person or, um, or moment that you recall where you had that freak out that prompted that? <laughs> Honestly, I, I don't recall, but I just remember kind of waking up one day and being like, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I mean, one, one certainly one factor at the time was uh, uh, I had a partner and I was like, well, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to, you know, move to be with them or, you know, how are we going to kind of work that out? And that was something that was on my mind, of course. Um, and I think also just uh, you know, you spend five and a half years researching the same sort of idea, and it just might not be as exciting as it was at the beginning. And so um, I think I just kind of did some Googling around to kind of be like, hey, what, what can you do with the psychology PhD? And luckily, UX research is a really good, good fit for a lot of people. And I'm really glad that I found it. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you, you bring a lot to it in terms of your academic background and, and the sort of rigor that goes into that level of research that you produce for your PhD. How important do you believe it is to have an academic background as a UX researcher? 
I would definitely say uh, not so important that you need a PhD. That, that part is like, that's too much. You don't need that. Uh, having, I mean, having some background is useful. I wouldn't necessarily say it's important. I think what it helped me with personally was um, uh, getting comfortable with writing. So I had to write a lot and being a good writer is important for being a good researcher because you have to convince other people to take your research seriously. Um, getting comfortable with presenting stuff. So I, you know, as part of any sort of advanced academic degree, you probably have to give talks and, and stuff to your lab or to a, at a conference or whatever. And that helped a lot. Um, and also just, I mean, honestly, just developing my kind of critical thinking skills, like understanding how to frame a problem and what sorts of ways to approach solving the problem, like doing that in kind of a formal way over and over again, certainly helped a lot. But that being said, you can get those sorts of experiences in a, you know, in a regular job as well. It's not just coming from academia. I think that one other thing, I guess, that I, I feel like academ academia gave me was a kind of broader context to kind of embed myself in, in terms of like human behavior and psychology and whatever. Like, you know, I studied my particular problem, but I was also taking courses on social psychology and developmental psychology and philosophy and things like that. And that kind of all somehow fed into who I am today, right? And I feel like those were all beneficial experiences. Um, but at the same time, I could have spent those three or four uh, years after my master's at a job that could have taught me a whole bunch of stuff I don't even know that I don't know now. So it's hard to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. So now you are a UX researcher. How do you think of your purpose as a researcher? Ooh, that's a good question. I remember um, my first UX research job, uh, I worked at a, a consulting firm called Centralis, which is in the Chicago area. And um, I believe it was uh, Kathy Kaiser, who's one of the partners who leads Centralis. I believe it was either her or Lyman Casey, her partner, who said something like, you know, I feel like one aspect of my job, at least, is kind of eliminating those tiny little frustrations that occur in someone's day, you know, like, it's really satisfying when you can kind of, you know, you're maybe you're doing some usability testing or something, and you uncover a particular issue, and the client or the company has no idea about this, and you're like, oh, they can solve this problem relatively easily, and it's going to eliminate some little frustration from thousands of people's days, and that's really, that's really cool. That's, that's one kind of aspect of that. It's more, uh, I mean, it's a little bit more patting myself on the back, I guess, but it's, it's kind of a nice feel good, <laughs> good aspect <laughs> of what I do. But honestly, I feel like, I mean, instead, now that I've been doing this for longer um, and doing a lot more kind of generative research and kind of foundational research, um, I find that what gives me um, a lot of the, the kind of good feelings these days is this idea of a company coming to me and being like, we don't know anything about our users. Like we, we have this cool idea or we have a, you know, a start of a product, but we don't actually know who we're designing for and what they're like and being able to show them like those people kind of, you know, like holistically almost like, you know, lots of aspects of their lives doing like a really nice deep user interview project where I can kind of be like, Hey, here's all the things you should be considering when you're designing for this group of people. I find that is really rewarding. Um, and also usually really rewarding for the client, which is great because I, I mean, I find that, that feeling of giving a client their first experience with research is like, is like really awesome. So that's the kind of work I like to do a lot of. Yeah. And I, I think it is important to, to have that clarity of purpose. And uh, you mentioned usability testing, that sort of immediacy of the impact that you're having, even if it is effectively just removing problems and that if there were no problems, you wouldn't get that feedback, which would be success, which is, a, is quite a, a, weird, a weird thing to consider that your job is basically to, to remove that friction at that level. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, yep. you know, what other um, 
common misconceptions that you that you've come across that people have about what it is that you do as a UX researcher? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, um, I, I, people still talk about focus groups a lot, and they assume that I do a lot of focus groups. I just talked about <laughs> this today with somebody, and it's it's funny because not that focus groups are not valuable in certain specific contexts. Like I'm not saying never do a focus group, but that's very little. I think I've done one focus group project in the past three years, right? It's very a very small amount of what I do. I think that when people uh, who have never maybe worked with a researcher before hear about UX research, they think about the evaluative stuff, the usability testing and, and that kind of thing, like A-B testing, like, oh, I have a prototype and I need you to test it you know, those kind of smaller projects that are kind of in the solution phase, you kind of already decided this is my solution. Now I want to make it, you know, tweak, tweak, tweak it to make it better. Um, whereas really like where I prefer to operate is more in the problem phase, right? Like even understanding what the problem is and who we're trying to solve it for, right? That's like where I'm kind of more, more comfortable. And so I feel like people have maybe a more narrow view of what UX research is and what's, what's involved. Um, let's see, another thing that's been coming up a lot lately is this idea of throwing a survey at most of your problems, like surveys or something. Everyone knows what a survey is, right? Everyone's experienced a survey. It's easy for them to grab onto that as something that they should be doing, which surveys are great. I'm not, not bad-mouthing surveys at all, but they're not great for everything, right? Um, you know, like you and I as, as researchers know that surveys are great for, you know, getting a little bit of information from a lot of people, right? Asking relatively simple questions, getting relatively simple answers. And it's not until you start to have a conversation with someone that you can really dig deep and kind of understand the things you would never have thought to ask in a survey, right? Um, and so I think that a lot of people are like, well, you know, with a survey, I can, I can get responses from thousands of people, that's better than doing five interviews or 10 interviews or whatever. And in some ways it is to answer certain questions, but um, you're gonna miss a lot if you just jump into doing a survey. And so that's something I've kind of, you know, butted my head against a, a lot over the past couple of years, probably. Yeah, and how successful have you been in, in shaping that <laughs> conversation? I think pretty successful. I think one of the good things about being a consultant versus working in a house somewhere is like, I think I'm viewed as an expert and people are like used to this idea of kind of paying me for my expertise or my thoughts. And so they're probably more willing to trust me. Whereas if I was in-house just working as a researcher somewhere, there's probably a little bit more arguing and pushback that's going to happen, I think. Um, and so it's, it's worked out pretty well for me. Not, not every client goes for it because usually interview projects are going to take longer time and they're going to cost more money than, a, than running a survey. So, and also you, of course, run into those people who just are never going to be convinced by something that's not numbers, right? They want, <laughs> yeah. they want to know 73% of people chose option C, right? They don't want to hear the reasons why option C was important to them. They just want to know that's what people say. And yeah. so that, that does come up sometimes. I think that you know, over time, you kind of get better at having those conversations. And I think also over time, people, non-researcher people get more exposed to research and they kind of start to understand. So they, they still might have a more narrow view than what I would want, but they're starting to kind of get better, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, if you were, if you imagine that you're talking to an internal research team at the moment that's having some of these issues that you've just spoken about, what, what would be some advice that you would offer them? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the number one thing that I that I do with kind of stakeholders that's most convincing is try to show them the risk that's involved in not doing the thing that I that I want them to do, right? So 
let's say we decide not to do this research or not to do research at all. What are the risks? What could go wrong if we make an assumption about this group of users and we're really wrong, right? Is it just a small thing? Is it just, you know, a couple people will be upset or is it like we could kill somebody, right? There's kind of a lot in that spectrum. Yeah. Uh, and so having, having companies think through risks and kind of realizing, hey, wait a minute, like, there's a lot we don't know about, uh, and and if we don't learn this stuff, we're going to be in big trouble. Um, that's that's important. And I, I, there's an activity that I like to do with clients sometimes um, called the assumption slam, which is something I picked up when I worked at Shopify. And the idea is that you have kind of like a two by two grid, and one axis is like riskiness, like low to high, and the other one is kind of like knowledge or confidence that we have about this, like low to high. And the idea is you start to brainstorm all the kind of assumptions or hunches or hypotheses you have, and you stick those in post-it notes on, on that grid. And you kind of argue about where they should be placed and that kind of thing. And what happens is you have this quadrant that's like high risk and low knowledge, and that's where you should really be researching, right? Like we don't know anything about this, and if we get it wrong, we're screwed. So that's kind of like a good, a good way to kind of, if you do that activity with, with a company, um, they might be like, oh, okay you know, I get it now. That's, that's kind of like a good visual way to lead them through that. So yeah. an exercise like that would be something I could recommend to, to an internal user research team. Yeah. That sounds really valuable. Was that called the assumption slam? Yeah, it was called the assumption slam. And I, and I'm pretty sure that the first time I heard about it was from JB Booth who works at Shopify. So I, I don't know if uh, she got that from somewhere else, but I think that's the first time that, that, that I heard about it. And it's super useful and it like generates a lot of arguments. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, which are usually good conversations. <laughs> yeah, hopefully in a cathartic way that everyone feels better afterwards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, and actually, sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No, you go. Uh, so just to add on another thing that, that I find is really valuable for internal teams is, you know, if you're working with stakeholders who don't believe that there's this problem that needs solving, then of course, like exposing those stakeholders to the end users in a, you know, kind of easy and safe way can be great, right? Include them, let them watch the, the interviews, uh, grab quotes to put in your presentations, you know, like let people really see these are, these are the real people and they're really having this problem. Um, definitely, you know, in, in the past I've had situations where, you know, like I've done some research and the team is really on board, but then I go to present and the CEO is there and they've been totally not involved in the research at all. And now they're there and they're like, you know, they're like, oh, well, you must have just recruited, you know, stupid people, essentially. <laughs> like you must have just recruited the wrong people. These are people that don't know how to, you know, use a phone or, or whatever. But then when I show them the videos, they're like, oh, okay. These are, these seem to be typical regular people and they're having these issues. You know, we've got to fix that right now. So that's yeah, another, yeah. another technique I would, I would suggest in that situation. Yeah. So that's observing a usability test or something similar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We talk about it as this um, notion of making the user real as a way of, um, I suppose, removing the, the, the bias or the assumption that goes behind some of those perspectives and getting people yeah, in the absolutely. room is, is, re is really valuable. So we, we've been talking a little bit about stakeholders and I know that you've worked both internally and as a consultant. Um, what are um, some of the key people in a product-based organization um, that you need to connect with and get across the research? You know, what, who, who do you really need to build great relationships with if you're in a product-based organization? Yeah, I mean, I would say number one is probably 
the product manager or whoever is making product decisions that's the kind of closest or easiest for you to influence, which is often the, the product manager I find. Like I, when I worked at Shopify, I was kind of spoiled because we worked on these really great teams that, that were comprised of uh, a, a UX researcher, a, a data person, a designer, and a product manager. And also a content strategist sometimes, which is like the perfect like kind of UX bundle. And we would make a lot of decisions as a team, and it was it was super super great. Not every organization has that, of course. Um, I find that I feel most successful on projects when I have a good relationship with a product manager. Um, and if there are designers on the team, it's also really important for me to be involved with them too, especially if it's an evaluative project where they're you know creating prototypes or something. Of course, I want to be able to you know communicate um, uh, my findings to them in, in, a, in a good way. But also sometimes um, a higher level than that. Like I find that, um, especially as a consultant, you know, usually whoever has hired me directly, like the product manager or whoever, has you know someone they're reporting to, or maybe even a higher level above that, who's you know they're kind of like, oh, we're spending money on this consultant. Let's you know I want to keep an eye on that as well, and that can be scary sometimes. Uh, not gonna lie, but it's also great because I feel like the chances of the results of my research actually making an impact and actually, you know, resulting in a new thing. Um, they go up like a whole bunch if I have those higher level stakeholders involved. Um, so it's usually hard, you know, it's harder to get them involved, especially with the kind of day to day aspects. Usually they just kind of show up for the final presentation, which, you know, isn't always the, the greatest. But um, if I can have that conversation with them and get them interested, then like I'm usually much more confident that something's actually going to come of this as opposed to, you know, other projects I've done either in-house or as a consultant where, you know, a couple of years pass, and I'm like, oh, did they ever, what happened to that thing? And, you know, they just never, never did it. <laughs> yeah. So you, you I think there's bring... still some things from my, I think there's still some things from my very first UX research job that like never, you know, you just, you just check the website every so often and you're like, no, they just didn't, but <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> yeah. And that can be quite disheartening as a researcher because a lot of effort and energy um, goes into running the research and, the, and then figuring out what the insight is behind it. It's something that I hear time and time again. And, and I think um, like what you're saying about uh, making sure that you're connecting with product people, but also with any, any sort of more senior stakeholders is really important. And as a consultant, yeah. po possibly like part of survival as well in, in terms yeah. of being able to continue working for that company um, when you're seen exactly. as yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, you, you mentioned um, some of your previous places that you've worked. And, and I also discovered that you worked at Prosper, which is um, mm. from what, I, what I read anyway, it was the first peer-to-peer -peer lending platform in the USA. You know, what um, advice if you were to give advice to someone that was in a similar position of establishing the research practice like you did, um, would, would yeah. you offer? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, just for context, um, for anyone who's listening, um, I, so I was the first research hire at Prosper, which was like a kind of, I guess, medium-sized startup in San Francisco. Um, so they did a peer-to-peer -peer lending or marketplace lending. So basically, you know, I want to borrow money and instead of borrowing it from a bank, I borrow it through Prosper and my, my loan is funded by uh, in, in investors kind of all over North America or at least USA in kind of these little bit of little chunks kind of. So they're kind of investing little bits in my loan and I get the money in the end. Anyway, and they, they hired me as their first researcher, which was uh, kind of the reason why I wanted that job. Like I love the idea of building a research team from the ground up and kind of getting all these processes in place. 
and it was really it was fantastic but it was also really hard and some some things that you know that were difficult uh, number one was everyone wanted a piece of me right everyone wanted to do research they never had research before and they kind of knew that like oh elizabeth is here we should we should be doing research so i'm going to contact her about research and this and was so I, this I had was, to, sorry to interrupt this was 10 years yeah. in right that they that existed for 10 years before you joined and they'd never run any research I guess, yeah, so I, I don't remember, honestly, it was a few years ago now, so I don't remember much about like the kind of origins of Prosper, but yeah, they might have been around for 10 years, I'm not sure, but <laughs> but certainly when I came around, you know, however, they, they were probably at, at least a few hundred, you know, a few hundred people, they had definitely never done any research, as, as far as I know, I'm sure they, they might have hired out for some consulting, mm. but they never had an internal researcher, yeah, and so, um, yeah, so everyone wanted to do some research. And I really had to um, set boundaries very quickly. And in my case, it really helped that I had a manager who helped me do that, right? He, he pretty much totally empowered me to say no to everything that I wanted to say no to. And saying no was the most important thing I did there. Um, I basically said no to whole like sections of the business. Like, I mean, my, my manager was kind of like, hey, you know, this, this part of the business is what's highest priority right now. And like, use that information as you will. And so, you know, there are poor, there are these poor product managers who would be asking me for research for like a whole year. And I just would say no every single time because they just weren't quote unquote important enough to me, sadly. Uh, <laughs> so but you were really time, popular. I, had to maintain, I was really popular, <laughs> yeah. but I also had to maintain those relationships because, you know, I, I, I worked with them and I liked them. And luckily it was all, it was all fine. No, no big hard feelings there. I don't think, but just kind of, you know, deciding doing that work to kind of prioritize which teams or what research questions are really important and saying no to everything else was, was very useful. Um, I think also almost like paradoxically, I also had the issue of uh, everyone wanted research, but not, not everyone trusted research or thought research was a good idea. Right. So I was kind of dealing with both those things at the same time. Um, and so it was also important for me to kind of get some quick wins basically. Um, and so I did that in two ways. One was running a really, really fast, um, like evaluative research study on, on, I think the, it was just their website. I think, I think maybe just their marketing site, just like a really quick, like within a few weeks of me starting there, I was like, okay, bam, here are some research results and we learned from them and we made changes really quickly. So that was part of it. And the other part was kind of making my research visible across the company in terms of like, you know, this is of course before the pandemic, bringing users into the company, doing research in the office. Like we had a, you know, nice glass walled, you know, kind of box to work in. And I would bring people into these really testing or do interviews and everyone could watch, everyone could see I'm bringing the participant in, you know, Elizabeth's doing research today. And I think that was really helpful as well to show really quickly, like we are getting research done at Prosper. Um, and so that was, that was really cool. So I think that those things were really important. Um, and also <laughs> documentation. So uh, I had the opportunity to start from scratch, right? Which is, is a really exciting opportunity. And so um, the, the company was already using Confluence and because they were already using Confluence, I figured let's use their tool because I didn't want to make everyone use a new tool. So I created a Confluence area or whatever you call it that was a repository for all the research and kind of highlighted, you know, when this research was done, what the key insights were, and then here's all the information if you need it uh, and kind of tried to organize it really well. So, um, so that was, that was really, that was a really cool experience. And then I kind of, I, I, I think I only was there for about a year and by the time I'd left, I'd hired one person and then, you know, ideally we were going to hire more, but Shopify, like, you know, just like reeled me in too quickly and I left, but, <laughs> but it was really cool. I mean, I, I think that if you, I would not take that position. If it's your very first research job, you should have some experience already. And then you will hopefully be successful in a role like that. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, seeing what you've seen, having uh, been, you know, the first researcher at a company setting up the practice, having worked at Shopify uh, internally for a couple of years and now um, externally as a consultant for a range of organizations, you know, what um, capacity um, have you seen that's most effective for the organization or, or, or is there a mix of capacities that can work? Um, sorry, when you say capacity, what, what, what do you mean? Um, what model is most effective for an organization that's, uh, that's trying to do UX research, whether it's bringing in external consultants or an internal team or, or some sort of mix in between? I get it. Okay. Yes, definitely. So I would say that it seems like a lot of companies start with the consulting thing, which makes a lot of sense because you don't always have the money or the time to hire, you know, hire an in-house researcher right away, or maybe you just don't have the need to just yet. Right. And so that's a really good way for companies to start off. They can kind of hire someone like me to kind of come in and very quickly execute a research project. Right. And that's usually enough to get people excited. And then maybe it builds uh, momentum to hire a researcher kind of down the line. Um, I think that having, having one researcher, <laughs> in-house is is a great first step but i think that you you know ideally you would pretty quickly hire at least one other person to kind of back that person up I, I have friends who have been in the same situation i was in where they were the only researcher and you know if there's a lot of demand at the company it can get overwhelming pretty quickly especially if they don't have the authority to say no to projects and they end up working you know crazy hours um once the company gets bigger like shopify for example obviously a big company it's nice if there are there's a researcher or a team of researchers who kind of focuses on one product area, right? So at Shopify, we had what, what are called product lines. And I spent a lot of my time working uh, in the retail section, basically. So anything related to selling in person with Shopify. And it was just nice to be able to own the research for that particular area, right? Like um, there's like a kind of pride in that. And also you just get to really deeply know the team. Um, I think a lot of other companies operate where researchers are kind of more like internal consultants where they go off and do projects for, you know, for different teams. And that's okay if you don't have, you know, not, not every company has enough researchers, but if you're a bigger company, you know, I loved that I was dedicated to solving this one kind of universe of problems. I didn't have to worry about everything at Shopify. Yeah. Um, and that was really useful. So I think once a company is big enough to kind of scale that way, then that's a really good place to be in. Yeah, that does seem to be the, the two models that operate out there, isn't it? Sort of like the research team is internal, but they operate as their independent squad and then they solve um, research briefs um, for product uh, as and when they come in or as and when they pitch yeah. um, ideas to research. Or there's the embedded model. Um, and it, I, it's, I can definitely see the benefits of, of both. I just yeah. wanted to turn our attention to your UXNZ 2019 talk, which I've mentioned, I think a couple of times now, but I really did find it fascinating because in that talk, you were speaking about some of the pop psychology myths that exist around color, which is a very, that's a very specific thing. But in that you gave an example of an AB test, an early AB test that had been done within an interface where there was um, a change from a green button to a red button. And you were using that to highlight uh, context as being really important in interpretation of results. And in this case, I think it was a 70% increase in clicks had happened because they changed you know, to a red button, um, but largely because the interface was uh, all green, lots of elements on, on the interface were green previously. So the buttons sort of blended in and now contrasted and stood mm -hmm. out. And so it seemed like you were worried that there was a tendency um, or, or at least um, a reality out there that there was a bit of skin deep analysis going on and sort of ignore, people were ignoring context or 
oversimplifying the results of, of research. Yeah. Yeah. I think that when, you know, when people recognize that they have a, a problem, they want to get to that solution as quickly as possible. Right. So I'm not surprised that people will kind of grab on to what they think is the simplest and easiest way to, you know, to get to the bottom of something. Yeah. And in that, in that particular example, <clears throat> This was a situation where, you know, someone did this A-B test, compared a green button to a red button, found the red button, you know, was, was quote unquote better and was like, okay, you know, red is the best color to use for, for these buttons without, you know, as you mentioned, without considering the broader context in which those colors were displayed, right? And there was all this green stuff in the background, so the green button kind of blended in. And that was, a, you know, a very likely alternative explanation for this. And if they tried other colors, maybe they would have found that orange is just as good as red or blue is just as good as red or whatever. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I mean, I think people are drawn to that kind of simple A-B testing or like really simple, you know, evaluative research because um, they think they, you know, they think they know what the problem is and that's the quickest way to, to solve the problem. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's just, and I, I don't blame these people, right? If I, if I was a, you know, a product manager or someone in that kind of situation, I might be inclined to run the same sort of test and I might not have thought of the, you know, the surrounding context. I think that's why it can be helpful to have teams where, you know, maybe one person is not going off and doing this stuff on their own, but you actually get, you know, collaboration and bring this up in a meeting or something and talk about like, hey, you know, if we were to run red versus green, what could we actually conclude from this? Could we conclude that red is the best color or do we just know that not green is the best color, for example, right? And where should we go from there? Um, so yeah, that, <laughs> that talk was really fun because I got to talk about all this cool color stuff, which I don't think about, um, you know, very often because I, my degree was such a long time ago, but um, it's just kind of interesting to like, take that, you know, those little bits of academic knowledge and kind of, you know, try to dive into how they can apply to, you know, real, real problems that, you know, product teams are facing every day. And that was just like a, when I saw that example, it's in a, it's in a whole bunch of, you know, uh, blog posts and stuff. And I'm just like, oh, come on. This is, there's like such an easy alternative explanation for this. Come on, think harder. <laughs> yeah. I had, I had a nightmare that I was going to wake up one day and fire up the internet and find that all interfaces had red buttons. And that, <laughs> that, that was just how design was going to go. But thankfully that hasn't happened. But I think it's really, it's really um, insightful, you know, that question of, you know, I think you, you said, you know, do we really know that it's um, red buttons perform better than green or is it um, that any other color could perform better than green and, and that sort of level of rigor that you put into the questioning that goes around these decisions. And it seems to me that there's a, a huge pressure that particularly product managers face around the, the, the roadmap and the backlog. And, and I, I wondered if you had any more insight into that having worked at product organizations as to, you know, what other sort of behaviors do you suspect might drive that kind of, um, rush to implement solution without necessarily thinking too much about the 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 reasons why yeah i mean i find that you know i don't know every product manager but i find that many of the product managers i've worked with are just trying to do too much in a year or a quarter or whatever and that's not their fault they're you know they're obviously being told to do certain things and so often when i look at a roadmap i'm like can we cut this in half like there's just no way to do all these things very well right <laughs> especially if you want research to inform them uh, I often end up in these situations where, you know, people want research immediately because, you know, next week they're supposed to, you know, make a change or whatever. And I'm like, no, no, if we want to actually do the right research, this is research that needs to happen. Like if it's, 
uh, generative research or kind of more deep foundational research, it has to happen before to inform the roadmap. Like that, we don't even know what the roadmap should be. You have to do the research first. And that can be, you know, that can be really hard to get across in kind of a maybe less mature, you know, product uh, organization. Like really, the product manager and or the product director or whatever and the researcher should be kind of paired together because the research should inform what the product direction is right and you know and kind of vice versa um and so i think you know i have a lot of sympathy for people who are working under those kind of roadmaps and, and deadlines because yes like it is very tempting to just do the bare minimum research you need to do to kind of tick the box of like okay boss i did some research and and it just it just sucks because doing bad research is doing is worse than doing no research right if you do uh, you know, poor quality research or research the wrong thing, then, you know, who, who cares? Um, I think it was, I, I think it was Erica Hall, I might be getting this wrong, but I think it was Erica Hall that said something like, um, you know, if you set up your shop in the wrong problem space, then like kind of who cares what your solution is? It's the solution to the wrong problem, right? Um, and so I think that what, what a lot of companies don't do is kind of spend more time in that problem phase and kind of noodle on that for a longer time before jumping into solutions. At the same time, I understand because companies want you to do things and make money and it's hard to be like, let's just sit and think about this for a few months. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, I mean, this is a real area of tension that exists between product and research and it. And I think um, from what you were saying anyway, it sounds like having a bit of empathy for the product manager um, and understanding the pressure that exists around that need to deliver, particularly when you've got to generate revenue or stick to a to a roadmap, is really key. But it also sounds like maybe the the conditions that create this tension between research and and, and delivery effectively are um, outside of both uh, the product manager and the researchers. Um, role of responsibility and perhaps they exist yeah. somewhere else in the organization and there's a job to be done there yeah absolutely i think that i mean a lot of companies have grown without any sort of kind of research culture baked into them and trying to tack on research later involves changing a lot of mental models and changing a lot of you know kind of behaviors that are deeply ingrained and yeah i mean the product manager him or herself might be totally on board with doing the research but if they're getting pressure from someone above them to move more quickly and they feel like they can't push back on that, then, you know, then that's what's going to happen. They can't really do too much about that. And that's, it's unfortunate. Yeah. So, so on that note, like if, as researchers, what could we do to help the product managers more effectively manage that and, and I suppose enhance the maturity of the organization over time? Yeah, I mean, I like to, I mean, when I started a new company, I like to do stakeholder interviews. So uh, I would hopefully have a decent relationship with the person above the product manager. They'd at least know who I am and why I'm here and why they should listen to me. Um, so I think building those relationships will be important. Um, and I think also just like, you know, developing the relationship with the product manager themselves. So you kind of make sure to back each other up or like inviting each other to meetings where like if the PM knows that he's going to have to make an argument that's going to be difficult for them to make alone, then they should bring me along and I can kind of speak to the research aspect because, you know, probably the best way to convince the stakeholder to do the research is to talk about risk and what happens if we don't do the research and maybe I'm the best person to speak to that and we should have that relationship going so I can be involved in that part as well. Yeah, I really like that. And I think that's a really important point because both roles are effectively and everyone involved in a product uh, are tr is trying to deliver a world-class result. And if you can back yeah. each other up and see uh, rather than the tension existing between yourself and the other party and rather it's something else in the organization to address together, I think that's quite a powerful way of framing it. 
So we, we were just talking a little bit about um, the maturity of, uh, of different organizations and their response to research. There's something that um, I've observed a lot here in New Zealand, at least, is that it seems that there are a lot of UX designers um, who have, have possibly come from UI, at least initially, that are running um, research themselves. How do you feel about that? In general, I feel great about it um, because, you know, the more people who are familiar with research and getting their hands dirty with research, the better. But there's some caveats to that, right? Uh, I think a lot of designers are kind of pressured to do this sort of research without really having the kind of training or background. Um, and that's obviously not, not so great. Um, I think also companies sometimes think they can solve their research problems by just having their designers do usability testing or, or AB testing on the stuff they're creating but they're not taking the time to have someone come in and do the more generative or, or foundational work that kind of feeds down. So like in general, I think it's great if a, um, a designer um, is willing and able to do their own evaluative research. That's kind of a nice piece that they can, that they can kind of like take and do on their own. Um, but you know, the idea of them also doing foundational, like kind of longer term, deeper research, that's probably gonna to take too much time and effort. They have their design job to do. That's probably gonna be pretty difficult. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like I'm all, I'm all about people doing research as long as they know what they're doing to some extent. <laughs> like for example, right now I'm, I have a client who, um, uh, they my, my client's an agency who has a large corporate client who um, they're running a program right now to teach people in the, in the corporate client how to do kind of design thinking sort of activities, right? Like how to run certain types of research, how to kind of do design thinking stuff. Uh, and they're actually working on their own problems to solve. They kind of have a, a project to work on. And it's great. Like I'm teaching this, you know, this, I spent this morning teaching journey mapping to these people who are like everything from, you know, IT people to, um, you know, people working in the, the, the stores or the branches of this company, like people who are not involved in research at all, but they're all getting a chance to do interviews and do journey mapping and whatever. And I think that's great because they're going to take that and bring that to their role in some sort of way or bring that to another company they work for. And it doesn't mean they're going to be research experts, but they're going to have a lot better background than, you know, someone just kind of coming in off the street and trying to run a usability test. So, yeah. Yeah. And teaching something that seems to be quite um, a big part of your career. I mean, obviously in academia, you were a lecturer um, and I know you've got your own um, training um, that you deliver. I think you also work through O'Reilly Media. So that's obviously quite a big name in terms of um, in terms of training and, and other sort of insight that they provide. Um, and you've got your um, UXNZ usability testing workshop. I believe it's called Mastering Usability Testing. You know, is this... Um, something that's designed for a broad audience or for designers or I mean who, who really are you trying to reach through this training? Yeah that's a great question I, I mean I think of the audience for this research uh, to be you know people who uh, who have not necessarily done any of their own usability testing before or maybe have but don't really have a strong grounding in it but either need to do it for their job or kind of imagine that in the future they would want to do it for their job, right? So the idea is that it's, it's a half day, like three hour workshop. And we go through everything from like defining your research questions, like understanding why you should be doing this sort of research in the first place to coming up with, you know, how we're gonna structure our, our tasks, how we're gonna recruit participants, 
Um, you know, when we actually run the sessions, how do you get someone to open up and talk to you? How do you not be biased in the questions you're asking? Mm -hmm. um, when you get the data, what do you do with it? Like, how do you make sense of all that data? And then how do you turn that, you know, that kind of synthesized data into like, okay, here are like the five or 10, like top insights and recommendations that kind of come out of this. So um, basically everything from like, getting the first idea to maybe do some research to like, okay, stakeholder here is what we should do as the result of the research. Um, and so like, I think I've taught this sort of thing a bunch of times before. And typically I find like uh, designers, product managers, sometimes content strategists, sometimes developers, um, and definitely like newer UX researchers or people who want to transition into UX research as a career. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. That's, so that's next month. I think it's on the 17th or the 18th of November. And you're delivering it on, online, am I right? Yeah, so I mean, in an ideal world, I'd be in New Zealand like I was last year. I actually taught the same workshop at UX New Zealand last year, and it was wonderful. And this year, of course, not doing that. So it's going to be on Zoom. Uh, yeah, it's, it's at, it's at a, a, a reasonable time in both New Zealand and in North America. So hopefully everyone, uh, hopefully everyone in Europe will be able to <laughs> attend that too. Hopefully it'll be a decent time for most people. <laughs> And if you, if you were going to give people some sort of top tips or insights that they might get from that workshop, you know, what would the, what would say your top three tips be as a result? Mm. I think writing good questions uh, is, is really going to be useful. And that's that I find that that's probably the, the biggest benefit because you can use that for not just usability testing, but also interviews or surveys and other kinds of methods, right? Like how to ask a good question is actually harder than it sounds. Uh, and um getting people to open up in the session. So building that rapport with a participant, making them feel comfortable, um, you know, listening actively and, um, and like responding to their body language, that kind of stuff. So that kind of like in the session, how do I, you know, think and respond to what people are doing? That's going to be a, a big chunk of what we talk about. Um, and I mean, I guess just in general, the importance of planning, like I think most of what I talk about in the session is like, here's how to plan for X, Y, and Z, which is not the most exciting thing to talk about all the time. But if you have a solid plan going into it, you're going to have a, a good result. Like the worst thing to do is to do a usability test or whatever type of research. And then you do all that work and then you're like, oh, wait a minute, why didn't we ask about this? Or like, why didn't we think of this? And that's because you didn't have the time to, to plan or you didn't take the time to plan, right? So making sure you come up with a research plan that like, you know, has your goals in mind, your research questions in mind, and then figuring out how you're going to get the answers to those research questions through the testing is like a really important part of this. Yeah. So what, I mean, what sort of mistakes have you seen um, when people are planning or running research? Yeah, I mean, um, not involving stakeholders. So um, coming up with a discussion guide for an interview, for example, but they haven't gotten the feedback from the people who are going to actually be consuming the results of the research. So they go and they give their presentation at the end and they're like, and you know, some CEO or whatever is like, wait, but this weren't, why didn't you ask about the thing? And you're like, oh, oh, I didn't even know I was supposed to ask about the thing. And that's, you know, that's obviously a big deal. Um, I think um, not knowing how to deal with people's reactions in, in testing. So uh, this doesn't come up that often and certainly less with usability testing than interviews, for example. But, you know, if someone gets emotional or upset during the interview for whatever reason, how do you handle something like that? Um, that's something that, you know, people certainly make mistakes with, like if someone starts crying, like not even acknowledging it and just kind of pushing forward. Or, you know, if someone uh, is not giving you the responses that you want, you know, ending the session and not giving them an incentive or something like that. You know, these, these are kind of things that hopefully most people realize they shouldn't do, but uh, people do do it. 
Um, and also just, I mean, a, a big mistake people make is doing all the work to do the research, to get all the data, and then just not doing anything with it, right? Like we did the research, we have a hundred pages of notes, but oh, we don't have the time to actually piece through this and, and get the insights out of there. So that is definitely a, a pitfall. Yeah, I mean, that also sounds like a massive waste of time and energy of everybody involved. Yeah. yeah. So when we, we, we were talking earlier, you mentioned um, how it was important to use the right methods for a study and that sometimes people come to you and they think, oh, well, let's run this survey. The survey is going to solve, solve all of our problems. And it sounded like you were um, able to sort of walk them back from that uh, solution um, before you get going. So when, when someone comes to you with, um, with a brief or, or with an idea that they need to run research, you know, what is the first thing that you do? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I, I, I want to find out is what are the goals of the research? You know, like what, regardless of what method you want to use, what are you actually trying to learn? And maybe that does not match up with whatever method they have, you know, they've chosen, which is totally fine. A lot of people, you know, they haven't done research before. They know maybe a couple of things they're familiar with. And so maybe to them, it's totally reasonable for them to, I don't know, do a survey to find out what kind of workflows people use to open a word document or something like that but that's not really a great survey question probably mm. um what a weird example i just picked off the top of my head I love uh, it. and so Robert. yeah <laughs> i'm clearly staring at word right now like here <laughs> uh, so i mean i i find that like um yes that that that, that part's important um uh i think that um trying to kind of help them think through you know not just what uh the goals of the research are but like what what the outcome what what kind of what they're going to do with the outcome of the research like is you know what's the point of doing for example uh, a nice really broad like foundational research project if you already know that you are being going to be forced to design this very specific solution right like maybe there's no point in spending the time doing that really great research if you're going to not be allowed to use the results right so that's something to kind of to kind of keep in mind um luckily i find that most people are not in that in that kind of situation but yeah i mean i think that some people just don't know what kind of methods are out there. And luckily, as someone who's done a lot of this, like I can use my expertise to kind of be like, hey, a survey is great. Let's do a survey later because of these reasons. But I think let's start by talking to some people because there's going to be some things we'll learn through these conversations that will inform our research, our survey questions and make that survey mm -hmm. much stronger if we do that later. Right. So I'm just kind of talking through my rationale, I think, is important. Yeah. And no, no, this is really valuable. And, and you're obviously someone who has some, um, you know, depth of experience in both qualitative and quantitative methods. Mm -hmm. Is qualitative research not taken seriously enough? Sometimes. It's getting better. I think it's getting better. Uh, it also depends a lot on the company, of course. Um, I think that a lot of people balk at qualitative research at first because of the small sample sizes. You know, I mean, like people are like, what? We're going to do eight interviews. Why don't we, why don't we survey 10,000 people instead, right? And so you kind of have to help them understand like both methods are great for, you know, for answering different, different questions. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely, uh, even if, even if I have a company or a client that's, that's like totally all in on qualitative research, they still want to like kind of quibble sometimes about exactly how many interviews we're going to do or exactly how many sessions we're going to do. And the way I, the way I tend to pitch it as is like, you know, we should keep doing these sessions until we stop learning new things, right? Or stop learning enough new things. And so maybe we start with six or eight or whatever, and we can always reevaluate and be like, you know what, this is still really interesting. Let's, you know, let's keep going. Um, so, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think it's always going to be a challenge for some people to accept qualitative research, but I think it's getting easier the more people that are exposed to it. Um, so, Elizabeth, what is it that you enjoy most about being a UX researcher? Ooh, uh, I, as I, I think I mentioned somewhere earlier in the interview, um, this idea of showing clients their their users or their prospective users for the first time, that's probably the most exciting thing. I, like, I love when I do a project and a client is like, I feel smarter now. Like, I feel like I've learned something that I, you know, that I wouldn't have learned before. That's like the number one thing. Um, I also like, I mean, I love my sessions with the participants themselves. Like tomorrow I have four user interviews scheduled, which is like probably plenty given that I have other meetings during the day as well. But like, I'm going to enjoy those four conversations. I get to talk to people who I wouldn't normally encounter necessarily, right? Like um, a lot of the projects I do are with people that, uh, I just don't meet on the daily, on a daily basis. Like, you know, I did a project last year where I spoke to, um, people who coordinate clinical trials for hospitals, for example, like I would never get to learn anything about being a clinical trial coordinator, but I got to talk to like probably six people who did it. And it was really cool and a very complicated field to be in. Um, so I enjoy that. I enjoy in my case, because I'm a consultant. I enjoy working in different industries. So, you know, I get to become an expert in, you know, peer-to-peer -peer finance for a little while. And then I, mo I move on to healthcare and then I move on to e-commerce or whatever. And that's really cool. I find that like, I've amassed a breadth of knowledge that's been really useful. Um, and like in particular, because I've happened to work on a lot of e-commerce projects and, and worked with Shopify a bunch, that kind of gets me a, a reputation, which gets me more work in e-commerce. And I, you know, kind of get to kind of further refine that expertise, which I, which I enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. And if you had to had to label one thing as something that you enjoy the least, what would that be? <laughs> um, recruiting, I don't really enjoy. Um, I mean, yeah, I, recruiting I don't enjoy because there's this kind of waiting period where like, you know, I have people I want to recruit and I have to wait for the responses and I have all these slots open on my calendar and I'm waiting for people to sign up and I hate blocking myself that way. Or maybe I have to... Um, get a, a third party recruiting vendor to help me out. And then I have to, you know, get a big chunk of money for my client to help with that. And that's kind of annoying. Yeah. I find that recruiting is just like, bleh, I'd rather not deal with it, but I have to. <laughs> yeah. That comes up so often actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think, I'm not sure anyone enjoys recruiting, even the recruiters. No. <laughs> so what I thought we'd do is we'd, um, now that we're sort of winding down our chat, I thought we'd, we'd um, play a fun game. Well, hopefully it's fun. Okay. Well, you, you be the judge of that. And it's called, what is the first word that comes to mind? And so I'm going to say a word and I want you to reply with the first word that comes to mind for you. Okay. Are you ready? I, I think so. Okay. UX research. Happy. Product management. Confusing. Nickelback. <laughs> Canadian, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so you've run a, you've run a lot of research you've you've been with a lot of participants I think you mentioned and I'm not sure if it was an example that um you know uh, a participant may have cried before that's obviously not mm. funny but what was what is the funniest thing that you've observed as a user researcher Okay, the, the first thing that comes to my mind, which honestly, I shouldn't even say is funny, I feel kind of bad saying it's funny, but I had, I did an interview with someone who uh, presumably ran a, a small business of some sort, but I didn't know much about it. And during the interview, he basically confessed to me 
I think he was telling the truth that he was some sort of like hired assassin for the government and that he had had a very dark past life where he had killed people. And I mean, again, I shouldn't say this is funny because I don't know. I mean, if it's true, it's not funny. And also if it's not true, it's also not funny. So, you know, take with that what you will. But it was certainly the most memorable, I, I guess, uh, session that I had. Yeah, it, so it sounds really weird. And I suppose you've got to be pretty prepared for that sort of stuff to happen when you're dealing with people that you don't, you don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So if you could give yourself some career advice... So think of the first day that you started as a UX researcher. If you were able to tweet yourself one tweet of advice to you on that day, what would you say? I would say, be open to learning, speak slower, stop interrupting people. <laughs> Because I, I definitely, I've gotten better over time, but I definitely had more trouble at the beginning uh, doing the kind of active listening and, and not, you know, trying to jump in with my next question because I was just nervous, basically. And I still struggle with it sometimes, but I've gotten better. Yeah, don't we all? Well, look, Elizabeth, it's been so great having you on the show. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for being so generous with your experience and your expertise. There's so much great advice here. I really can't wait to go back through this video and prepare the show notes for everyone. Uh, so to everyone that's tuned in, thank you as well. Everything we've covered today, including Elizabeth's workshop at UXNZ next month in November, uh, will be linked to and all the other fantastic resources that we've mentioned. If you have enjoyed the show, please remember to subscribe to the channel and to like and comment on this video, and we'll keep you up to date with all the other amazing interviews we have lined up. Elizabeth, is there anything you want to say before, before we finish up? No, I don't think so. Just thank you so much, Brendan, for the opportunity. It's just, uh, it's nice to, to meet someone who, you know, who actually remembers a talk that I did and wanted to speak to me because of it. This is very rare and it's just nice to, uh, to talk to you. So thank you so much. Wonderful. Thanks, Elizabeth. Hey, hey.